Though one may be overpowered by another, two can withstand him, and a threefold cord is not quickly broken. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to all here this morning. Welcome to Strength to Strength. Blessing to be gathered with you from Papua New Guinea to Australia, to other parts of the world, South America. We're very thankful to have Brother Adam Boyd with us. Um, this morning, and he's even on the call. He had said that uh, the internet in his part of the world isn't very reliable, so he went ahead and did a recording ahead of time, uh, just in case his internet was down. And so we have that as a backup, but it's looking like so far he's got good internet, so we're thankful for that. So um, before we get started here, let's just bow our heads for prayer. <clears throat> Father, thank you for this opportunity to be gathered here together in this way. Father, your mercies are new again this morning. The, the nature is is just proclaiming your majesty all around us here, and we thank you. And we are so uh, undeserving of your love, of your kindness toward us. We're so thankful for your son, Jesus, and for the blood that cleanses us and gives us life. How our sins can be removed from the, from uh, to the ends of the earth. And Father, as we were talking about, we're, we're gathered here from the ends of the earth, but scripture says that our sins are removed as far as the east is from the west. And, and there's, they're, they're, they're removed. And we're, we're so thankful for that, Lord. And to think that we can come boldly to your throne and that you care about us and that you, you care about your, your, your body on earth. You're intimately involved. And Father, our desire is really as brothers and sisters, is to see your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And as we engage this topic here today, um, Father, I ask for humility, I ask for wisdom, and Father, most of all, that your name be glorified, that your gospel could be proclaimed, and that through this work, that there could be um, souls brought into your kingdom and brought into a reconciliation with you. So, Father, um, we just we ask for your presence. Thank you, Lord. And go with us. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> so, yes, so Brother Adam is here with us. He's coming to us from Papua New Guinea. Um, it's uh, I think it's almost eight, it's almost eight o'clock there uh, in the evening. So he looks not too tired, um, looks a little better than the rest of us, um, but this afternoon we'll get to flip the tables on them. It'll be 5 o'clock a.m. Sunday morning there um, and 3 o'clock p.m. here, so um, we'll get to, um, yeah, he'll get to experience what we're experiencing here this morning, but he said he's an early riser, so that shouldn't be a problem. So I met Adam and his wife Martha uh, in 2019. Um, my family and I were, uh, Adam visited our congregation here. And um, here um, he was interacting with different ones of us, um, some of it through All Nations Bible Translation, and also that some of it through the journey that Adam was on, um, the, the kingdom journey that he actually talked about here on Strength to Strength several months ago. Of um, Back in 2016, um, God was doing a work in their lives, he and his wife's life, and he was looking at scripture and trying to figure out and understand what, what is a faithful what does a faithful representation of an ambassador of the kingdom of God look like on earth? And took him on quite a journey. I would encourage you to go back and listen to that talk. Um, I think we actually have it linked here on the, on this webpage. 
and so since then, Adam and I have have, have interacted on different spheres. And, and um, recently, uh, in the last six months, I listened to a message or two that he had he had brought um, <clears throat> to a congregation. Um, and in regards to this topic of dispensationalism and something that I that I care about, um, and um, to uh, to understand correctly who we are, where we're at in God's in God's plan here. And um, Adam, we asked Adam to, to if he would come share this, and, and he agreed to it. And has put a lot of time, a lot of thought into it, and a lot of preparation. So we're thankful for that. Uh, just a couple things about Adam. Um, as you know, he's in Papua New Guinea. He's a Bible translator there, uh, working with the Inga people. Uh, I understand he's coming towards the end of the translation, um, possibly wrapping this up in the next couple months. Is that right, Adam? Yes, that's correct. Okay. So that's really exciting. And Adam has put his all into translation, into Bible translation. And just for example, one thing I want to note here at the beginning, some of you might be interested in knowing this. Um, those of, those of you, who, those of us who care about <clears throat> the textual streams of scripture, um, Adam, uh, I asked, uh, I, I, I knew that Adam was working on a, the, the Greek text, uh, of scripture, uh, particularly the Byzantine text, which is, uh, would be the stream where the Textus Receptus is in, and um, and he, he cares a lot about seeing us, uh, seeing Bible translation and seeing us reading the scripture from uh, a very solid textual stream. And I asked him, I said, um, could I just make make a little announcement at the beginning of this call about his work or what you're doing right, you know, kind of a long study of Bible translation. You're also working on this, this uh, New Testament textual stream. He said I could, and he sent me some wording hear um, a little bit about it, a little bit of, a little bit of update, and I'm just going to read it off. Um, I really want to see what Adam is doing get get publicized, and so I thought I would just read it off right in the beginning, and this is what he says. He said, I'm working on a translation of the Byzantine text. I became interested in the Byzantine text after reading Dr. Morris Robertson's essay, The Case for the Byzantine Priority. Two key facts. First, the critical text, which is a lot... The, the critical text is the, 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 the textual stream that a lot of the newer translations today are using. He says, so first, the critical text has at least 105 verses in the New Testament that have no support in any Greek manuscript when the verse is considered as a whole. I find this to be completely unacceptable. Second, the Textus Receptus was originally compiled on the basis of only seven manuscripts. So even though the Textus Receptus is, is generally Byzantine, it is not best representative of the Byzantine text form. And so he said we're translating the Inga New Testament from this textual stream or the Robison and Pierpons uh, Byzantine textual stream. And but he goes on to say that he says I'm, uh, he's publishing, um, he's taking this this Greek text that he's using for the translation of the Inga and putting it into English. Um, and publishing it in three different editions. The first is a standard edition with the English text. The second is a text critical edition with text critical footnotes, noting all the diff- all the translatable differences with a variety of editions of the Greek New Testament. This edition will include manuscript percentages for some of the variants. For example, it will show that 92.6% of the manuscripts include the last line of the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6.13. The translation I am working on will be somewhere between the New King James Version and ESV. When you think about um, like the, the uh, form versus 
uh, thought. And then, and the NIV, CSV, as far as how literal it is. It will be translated in a style that is reminiscent of the Tyndale King James legacy. So, Brother Adam, I'm really looking forward to um, seeing that when that's available, which will be available later this fall. And so if anyone's interested in knowing more about this, um, Adam would love to talk about it. And so um, we'll be happy to get um, get you his uh, contact information. So thank you for letting me talk about that at the beginning here. Um, And uh, I know it's it's really been a part of Adam's life the last couple of years. Um, I know he has different reviewers as well. Um, looking over his shoulder as he's doing this. So let's jump in. Um, <clears throat> the title for today, for this event, is called um, the, um, uh, let's see here, The Dangers of Dispensationalism. And the talk this morning will be looking at an overview of what is classical dispensationalism. And as I thought about uh, the vision of, of strength of strength, is to advance Jesus' kingdom by tackling thought-provoking topics. And as I thought about advancing Jesus' kingdom, we know that doctrine is at the, is at the center of that. Doctrine does matter, and it, it does affect us practically. And I believe this um, this doctrine uh, does have an effect, an adverse effect, on, on the church today. And so I'm excited to see Brother Adam uh, being willing to engage us. So God bless you, Brother Adam, as you as you dig into this, and um, it's all yours. Great. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's a it's a pleasure to be with you all this morning. And uh, Brian, before I start, remind me of the time. What what are we looking at as far as time? Sure. So typically we wrap up. Um, we say at seven o'clock, but often it goes to okay. seven fifteen. Um, okay. So, uh, but in light of us meeting this afternoon, we won't have much Q and A at the end of this. We'll kind of wrap it right okay. now, and then. This afternoon, after your talk, we'll have we'll open up for a Q and A. Which, by the way, we good to note here. Um, with our events, we do those differently than our typical just regular talks. We have it. Um, we we ask for questions ahead of time, and then we just have a moderator um, uh, pose those questions. And so uh, we've already, we've already had numerous questions come in via email and other ways that we have for this afternoon. But for the group that's listening here uh, this morning, this afternoon. You can submit your questions in via the chat button okay. as, as, as we go along. So, but like I said, we won't have much q at the end of this. this we'll, we'll end the call and then have, have more of that this afternoon after the call. So. Okay, that's good. That'll that'll work out with, well with what I've already planned. So, Okay, great. Uh, <laughs> if that's the case, I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on introduction. I'm just happy to be here. And uh, I think we'll just go ahead and, and dive right into the topic because it's a, it's a very – complex topic and uh, I think we'll we'll just get right into it because we don't have a lot of time to waste. <laughs> Bless you, uh, so let me let me get my let me share my screen here. Uh, does everybody see that all right? Yes, we can see that well. Okay, so there's the yes we're talking about the dangers of dispensationalism. And this first part, as Bryant mentioned, is an overview of classic dispensationalism. And I'm going to start off with a few disclaimers. This is sort of my introduction. This is why I wanted to go ahead and dive right in. First, I am not an expert on dispensationalism. And so uh, there's probably some of you listening today or tuning in today that know more about this topic than I do. And so if I say anything that's incorrect or, or misleading, please feel free 
uh, either at the end of this session or at the end of the next session to uh, correct me. You won't offend me if you say, you know what, you, you, that wasn't quite right. It's really more like this. I will not be offended by that. And I would welcome that sort of feedback. So please uh, don't be shy about, uh, you know, helping me as well to learn more about this topic. Second, there are many forms of dispensationalism. Um, we are just going to be talking about one of them, which is classic dispensationalism. Um, so, but as we talk, just keep in mind that dispensationalism, what we're going to talk about in this session, it's actually much broader than one, what we're going to cover. We're going to cover one, one particular form, and it's probably the most influential form. So it's really a good one to focus on, but it doesn't mean that every dispensationalist believes everything that we're going to present today. Um, and as I said, the primary focus is on classic dispensationalism. Uh, there's also revised dispensational, pro progressive dispensationalism. We're not going to really touch those. Um, also, I will not be delving into detailed interpretation of prophecy. Um, there's just not time to do that, and I'm probably not the best person to do that anyway. So if you're hoping for very detailed uh, interpretations, uh, we're not going to get into that in this session or in the next session. Finally, as a disclaimer, much of what I'm going to share is taken from Benjamin L. Merkel's book, Discontinuity to Continuity, a survey of dispensational and covenantal theologies. And so if this presentation piques your interest and you want to learn more, particularly about some of the other forms of dispensationalism, uh, that's a great book to, to look at. It really is just trying to present what these different theologies uh, believe without really uh, critiquing or supporting them. And so I found it to be a very helpful book. All right, with those disclaimers out of the way, let's jump right into the question, what is dispensationalism? If you're anything like me, the first time you heard dispensationalism, you're like, what in the world does that mean? That is a strange term, and it's not something that we hear and, and then immediately say, oh, this, it must mean this. It requires some definition. So first, we'll start with de definitions of dispensation. What is a dispensation? First, just general definitions. I've taken these two definitions from uh, just general English dictionaries. Okay, the first definition, a dispensation is a general state or ordering of things. That's one definition. A second definition, it's a system of order, government, or organization of a nation, community, etc., especially as existing at a particular at a particular time. Now, here we could we could talk about um, two dispensations in American history to help understand this term. We could talk about the colonial dispensation, and then we could talk about the self-governing dispensation. If we're talking about the history of the United States, the colonial dispensation would be the time when the system of order or government was under the king of England and America was colonies composed of colonies that were under the government of the king of England. Then we could talk about the self-governing dispensation, which would be after the Revolutionary War in America, where America was no longer under the government of the King of England, but was its own self-governing nation. So we could talk about two dispensations in American history, just using the term dispensation in general. So that's that's in general what a dispensation is. Now let's look at a theological definition. And again, this is just taken from a standard English dictionary. It defines dispensation in a theological sense as a divinely ordained order prevailing at a particular period of history. A divinely ordained order prevailing at a particular period of history. In other words, it's a, it's an order 
or or we, we could even say a government that God has set up for a particular period of history. Now let's look at how dispensationalists define the word dispensation. We'll look at a couple of them here. The first is by Cyrus Schofield. He defines dispensation as a period of time during which man is tested in respect of obedience to some specific revelation of the will of God. So God reveals part of his will to man and within a dispensation, that's a that's a particular time in which man is tested regarding his obedience to whatever God has revealed. All right. Craig Blazing defines a dispensation as a particular arrangement by which God regulates the way human beings relate to him. So dispensation is a particular way that God is dealing with mankind at a particular period in history. Now let's look at dispensationalism. We looked at dispensation. Let's look at definitions of dispensationalism. Again, these are just general definitions from English dictionaries. Dispensationalism is a belief in a system of historical progression as revealed in the Bible, consisting of a series of stages in God's self-revelation and plan of salvation. So it's, it's stages through history in which God is revealing himself and the plan of salvation. Another definition, adherence to or advocacy of a system of interpreting history in terms of a series of God's dispensations. I always love it when you look up a word like dispensationalism, and then in the definition, they use the word dispensation. And you're like, well, that doesn't really help. Um, but you get a, just a quick look there, advocating a system of interpreting history in a series of dispensations. We already talked about what a dispensation is, a system of governing or ordering society. Now, the last definition is from Wikipedia, and I don't fully endorse everything that Wikipedia has to say. We have to take things that Wikipedia says with a grain of salt, but I found this definition to be helpful. So Wikipedia defines dispensationalism as a particular hermeneutic or analytical system for interpreting the Bible based on a literal translation and which stands in contrast to the earlier Calvinist system of covenant theology used in biblical interpretation. Okay, so we see a couple of things here. It's a hermeneutic or a way of interpreting the Bible. Uh, it's based on literal translation. It stands in contrast to the Calvinist system. And so those are some key points that the Wikipedia definition brings out. Now, dispensationalism generally talks about seven dispensations or seven periods of history. Now, not all dispensationalists break it into seven periods. Some have as few as three. Others have as many as eight. But this idea of seven dispensations is by far the most common and the most popular. Uh, and this was introduced by uh, C.I. Schofield of the Schofield Reference Bible. We'll talk about him more in a minute. So what are the seven dispensations that dispensationalists often talk about? The first is the dispensation of innocence, which goes from creation to the fall. Obviously, talking about the time when Adam and Eve had not yet entered into sin. They were living in innocence and sin had not yet come into the world. The second dispensation is called conscience, which goes from the fall to the flood. And the word conscience here is uh, 
describing the idea that humans were under this dispensation were to follow their God provided conscience. So conscience is what is ordering or governing humanity during this dispensation. The third is human government, which goes from the time of the flood to the Tower of Babel. And this is where God's expectations were to be enforced by human institutions, human forms of government. Okay, the next dispensation is promise. This goes from the period of Abraham to the Exodus and is governed by the promise that God gave to Abraham. Following that is the dispensation of law. And as far as time period, this is by far the the longest dispensation, stretching from the time of Moses to the crucifixion. And obviously, this is the time period that's governed by the law that God gave to Moses. Next is the dispensation of grace, which dispensationalists say goes from the crucifixion to the rapture, which I have in quotes. We'll talk about that later. Um, and dispensationalists say that this is the dis- dispensation that we are in now, the dispensation of grace. Finally, is the dispensation of kingdom. And dispensationalists teach that this goes from the time period of the millennium, which is r- referenced in Revelation chapter 20, to the great white throne, the final judgment. So those are the seven dispensations that dispensationalists typically talk about. Now, just after giving a few definitions of dispensation, dispensationalism, and looking at these seven dispensations, what are some initial impressions that we might have? Well, I'll I'll share some of mine that I've had as I've explored dispensationalism. First, we see that dispensationalism embraces literal translation and interpretation. And I think in general, all of us listening in would probably support that. We probably, you know, want to have a a system of understanding the Bible that embraces literal translation and interpretation. I think most of us would be behind that. Second, we see that it's opposed to the Calvinist system. And again, I would say that most people listening in today would probably support that as well. Hey, if it's against Calvinism, it's probably not so bad. The third impression that we might have is that the seven dispensations, you know, seem generally accurate. Now, we might have some quibbles, especially towards the end, as we're talking about the dispensation of grace and dispensation of the kingdom. But the just the concept of arranging uh, biblical history into different divisions, uh, and Christians have been doing that since the time of Irenaeus in the second century. So this idea of breaking history into different dispensations or different periods of time is is not a foreign concept. It's something that Christians have been doing for a long time. And I think most of us would generally look through the Bible and say, yeah, there's sort of these different periods of history. And so what is the problem? You know, our initial impression is, you know, there's a lot of good things here, things that we wouldn't necessarily disagree with. Well, I think as I continue this presentation, I'm not going to have to tell you what the problem is. I think you're going to start having red flags going off in your head. And we'll talk about those problems in the afternoon session. And so during this session, you can just start making mental notes of any problems that you see as we discuss dispensationalism in more detail. But initially, it seems like, you know, there's a lot of positive things that we could agree with. 
Now let's shift to talking about the origins of dispensationalism. We're going to do that by looking at uh, three men who've been very instrumental in dispensationalism and making it a popular theology. The first man is John Nelson Darby, who lived from the year 1800 to 1882 uh, in England. Now, he was a trained lawyer. And although he was a trained lawyer, he felt that being a lawyer was inconsistent with his religious belief. I don't know if David Berceau is listening to this, but uh, sorry, David, if that offends you. Although I think David Berceau in his own walk realized that some of his uh, work as a lawyer was inconsistent with his Christian belief as well. And he changed the form of law he was practicing. And so John Nelson Darby would be similar. Trained lawyer, but he saw some problems with being a lawyer and it being inconsistent with his Christian belief. He was an ordained Anglican priest, at least initially. He was a futurist. Now, futurist has a very specific definition when we're talking about it in a theological sense. It talks, it, it references a person who believes that eschatological prophecies are still to be fulfilled. So prophecies about the end days have not been fulfilled yet. They're still to be fulfilled. That's what we mean by futurist. And he's generally considered to be the father of dispensationalism. Uh, he first published his dispensational views in a paper uh, titled The Apostasy of the Successive Dispensations. He published that around the year 1830. He was also a Bible translator. And I've actually referenced his translation a number of times. Darby's translation uh, of the New Testament is a very literal translation. But as far as literal translations go, it's quite good and generally easier to understand than something like Young's literal translation. And so if you're ever looking for a, a literal translation, you want to check what the Greek actually says. He has a great translation. I would recommend it. Um, and so I feel sort of at one with him with, as far as Bible translation is concerned. And I respect his work there. Um, and he was also a leader of the Plymouth Brethren. And we'll talk about them in a minute. But he had become disappointed with the lack of spiritual fervor in the church. And he felt like the established church was so corrupt that no true believer could remain in it. And so he became part of this movement called the Plymouth Brethren. Now, let's talk a little bit about the Plymouth Brethren. Who were they? Uh, They began meeting in Dublin, Ireland in 1825. They were a restorationist movement. Uh, They felt that the established Church of England had abandoned or distorted many of the ancient traditions of Christendom. And so they wanted to go back to the teachings of the New Testament. They had a desire to create a holy and pure fellowship and even included a dress code in many of their congregations. Um, Oh, sorry. Let me continue here. Uh, the people in the movement simply wanted to meet together in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ without reference or without getting concerned about denominational differences. Um, they practiced spontaneous worship and preaching, similar to the Quakers, which obviously is another uh, historic peace church. Um, the Plymouth Brethren, I do not believe, were a, a peace church, but they had similar, uh, similar to the Quakers, the spontaneous worship and preaching. And again, they were against denominationalism, but ironically, they were split among themselves. Uh, The Plymouth Brethren split into two main groups, the Open Brethren 
and the exclusive brethren. Then the open brethren split into two more groups and the exclusive brethren split into many more groups. And so even though they didn't want, they wanted all Christians to be one and they didn't want denominations, yet they couldn't agree with themselves and they kept split, splitting amongst themselves. They also embraced sola scriptura and an emphasis on the literal interpretation of prophecy. Now, why do I share all these things about the Plymouth Brethren? Well, as I read through this list, I see a lot of similarities with conservative Anabaptist churches and and kingdom Christians uh, who are also restorationists. They want to go back to the teachings of the New Testament. They want a holy and pure fellowship. Many churches have dress codes, Uh, spontaneous worship and preaching, not as much, except maybe in some of the apostolic churches. Um, And also, unfortunately, we also see a lot of splits among conservative Anabaptist churches and a focus as well on, on sola scriptura and literal interpretation and application of scripture. So there are a lot of commonalities here. Uh, so I think John Nelson Darby, his perspective on things was very similar to the perspective that many of us are coming from. And so we want to learn from his mistakes and not repeat them. Uh, because if we're so, if we're already thinking so similarly as he did, there's a great potential that we could make the same mistakes that he did. And so that's why I bring this out about the Plymouth Brethren and who John Nelson Darby was and what he believed. So he was the father of dispensationalism. But let's move on to talk about Cyrus Ingerson Schofield, who lived from 1843 and to 1921. He was an American. Uh, he was a soldier in the Civil War. Ironically, he was also a lawyer and went on to be a politician. So I guess dispensationalism is popular among lawyers whatever that may mean. Uh, Earlier in his life, he was a heavy drinker who was divorced and remarried. Uh, He went on to convert to evangelical Christianity, and he was an ordained congregationalist minister. So he's ordained in the congregationalist uh, churches. He was a prominent fundamentalist. Um, If any of you have ever heard of a pamphlet called Rightly dividing the word of truth that probably rings a bell with some of you. Uh, he was the author of that pamphlet in 1888, rightly dividing the word of truth. He was also the editor of the Schofield Reference Bible, which I imagine most of you have heard of, initially published in 1909. Now, the Schofield Reference Bible was so popular and influential that the label dispensationalism was first used in the 1920s to distinguish Schofield's theology from other approaches. And and Schofield has such an enormous influence uh, in America that we could really say he was the catalyst for American dispensationalism, and primarily through the Schofield Reference Bible. So he's a very important figure in the history of dispensationalism. The third man we're going to talk about is Lewis Ferry Chaper, who lived from 1871 to 1953, also another American. He was the co-founder and first president of Dallas Theological Seminary. I imagine many of you have heard of that seminary. He, too, was an ordained congregationalist, just like Schofield. In fact, he was mentored by Schofield. So there's a very close link between Chafer and Schofield. Uh, Chafer was also the teacher of Charles C. Ryrie who was a professor of systematic theology at Dallas Theological Seminary and one of the most influential theologians of the 20th century. 
If any of you have ever heard of the Ryrie Study Bible, it's named after this man here, Charles C. Ryrie. Uh, so the Ryrie Study Bible, the Schofield Reference Bible are both dispensationalist works. Chaper was also the author of Systematic Theology, uh, which was an eight volume work. And it was the first time that a premillennial dispensational framework of Christian theology was systematized into a single format. Now, these books were so popular that they sold out the first printing in six months and the series uh, needed had a third printing within two years. And the series has been printed a number of times uh, since then by a number of publishing houses. So it's still very influential. It is the, the primary theological reference work for uh, dispensational theology. So we have John Nelson Darby, C.I. Schofield, and Lewis Berry Chaper, three men who are very important in the history of classic dispensationalism. Let's now turn our attention to the core of dispensationalism. What is at the very heart of dispensationalist teaching? I'm going to put a quote up on the next screen. And even if you don't get anything else that I say in this presentation, if you understand this one quote and remember this one quote, you will know what is truly at the heart of dispensationalism. Okay, here's the quote. It's from Charles C. Ryrie, again, the student of Lewis Berry Chafer. A dispensationalist keeps Israel and the church distinct. This is the core of classic dispensationalism. A dispensationalist keeps Israel and the church distinct. So Israel is kept radically separate from the church and the two are never mixed in the mind of a dispensationalist. If you can remember that, everything else within dispensationalism will start to make sense. So that's the core of dispensationalism. Now let's look at a few more specific areas. We'll start with biblical interpretation. Now we already said that classic dispensationalists claim to follow a consistently literal interpretation. Lewis Chafer says, Proper interpretation assumes that each word has its normal, literal meaning, unless there are good reasons for regarding it as a figure of speech. So there's, again, there's the claim to follow a consistently literal interpretation. Now, there's some nuance in that. Uh, text related to Israel must be interpreted literally, according to classic dispensationalists. So if the text is about Israel and Old Testament prophecy about Israel, it must be interpreted literally. However, classic dispensationalists teach that other texts can be interpreted typologically, especially when they relate to the Gentiles or the church. Now, let's take a look at that word typologically. Make sure we understand what that means. Typology is a special kind of symbolism. More specifically, when we're talking about typology, a type in scripture is a person or thing in the Old Testament that foreshadows a person or thing in the New Testament. For example, in the story of Abraham being told by God to sacrifice his son Isaac, a typological interpretation sees Isaac as a symbol for Christ. And Isaac, Abraham's sacrifice of Isaac prefigures or foreshadows God's sacrifice of his own son, Jesus. So when we're talking about uh, typological interpretation, that's what we're talking about, where a type uh, stands for or foreshadows something in the New Testament. So dispensationalists say that text related to Israel 
still must be interpreted literally, but other texts can be interpreted typologically. John Darby puts it this way. He says, first, in prophecy, when the address is directed to the Jews, there we may look for a plain and direct testimony, because earthly things were the Jews' proper portion. On the contrary, where the address is to the Gentiles, there we may look for symbol or typology, because earthly things were not their portion, and the system of revelation must, to them, be symbolic. So those are a lot of words to basically say, if the text is about Israel, it has to be interpreted literally. If the text is about uh, the Gentiles or the church, it can be interpreted symbolically. Uh, Cyrus Schofield says the following. He says, it is then permitted, while holding firmly to the historical verity, reverently to spiritualize the historical scriptures. In other words, you don't have to interpret them literally. But he goes on to say, prophecies must ne- may never be spiritualized, but are always literal. So again, we see this dichotomy. Um, prophecies, specifically prophecies about Israel, can never be spiritualized. They're always literal, but other texts can be spiritualized. Let's look at some typological interpret examples of typological interpretation in the Schofield Reference Bible. These are all taken from the notes of the Schofield Reference Bible. Eve is considered to be a type of the church as the bride of Christ. Abel is a type of the spiritual man, and the sacrifice that he offered is a type of Christ, the Lamb of God. The Ark is a type of Christ as the refuge of his people from judgment. Melchizedek is a type of Christ, the king priest. Lot and Abraham are types of the worldly and the spiritual believer. And so we see that, again, classic dispensationalists, they they embrace uh, typological interpretation at many points, but they say that texts related to Israel must be interpreted literally. Well, that could bring up a question if you're starting to think about this. What about Old Testament prophecies about Israel that seem to be fulfilled typologically or symbolically in the New Testament? Let's take a look at a couple of examples. Because the dispensationalists are saying Old Testament prophecies about Israel have to literally be fulfilled in Israel or through Israel. But there's places in the New Testament where Old Testament prophecies seem to be fulfilled through the Gentiles or through the church. And so so what do we do about those? Let's look at a couple examples. Uh, First, um, Benjamin Merkel in the book I mentioned uh, during the disclaimer portion Um, He summarizes the classic dispensational views on interpreting prophecy, and I I think his words are helpful for us to see how classic dispensationalists interpret prophecy. This is his summary. If the New Testament appears to claim that the Old Testament prophecy regarding Israel is fulfilled in Christ and the church, then there are two separate fulfillments, or the New Testament fulfillment is only an application or partial fulfillment of the Old Testament principle that will also be literally fulfilled in Israel. So what he's saying there is, if an Old Testament prophecy about Israel appears to be fulfilled in the New Testament, either in Christ or in the church, classic dispensationalists will only say that it's an application or partial fulfillment, and that the true fulfillment uh, will come at a later time through 
the nation of Israel. And we'll look at a couple examples of that. Let's consider first Joel chapter 2, verse 28, which says, And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. Okay, we all, we're all familiar with that text. We're familiar that that's quoted in Acts. In Acts 2.17. Here's the footnote from the Schofield Reference Bible on Joel chapter 2 verse 28, what we just read. It says, confer Acts chapter 2 verse 17, which gives a specific interpretation of afterward. Afterward in Joel chapter 2 verse 28 means in the last days and has a partial and continuous fulfillment during the last days, which began with the first advent of Christ. But the greater fulfillment awaits the last days as applied to Israel. In other words, what this note in the Schofield Reference Bible is saying is this. Yeah, Joel 2.28, maybe it's partially fulfilled in Acts chapter 2, but the greater fulfillment is going to come later, and it's going to be applied to the nation of Israel. Okay, Acts chapter 15, verses 14 to 17, gives another good example. Oops, sorry. Um, My screen is partly covered up here. I've got to move this. Simon has declared how God at the first visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return and will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. I will rebuild its ruins and I will set it up so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord. Even all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who does all these things. So here, Peter is quoting Amos chapter nine, verses 11 to 12 in relation to the Gentiles being accepted into the church. But instead of interpreting this passage from Amos as being fulfilled in the early church, this is what Schofield has to say in his reference Bible. The the footnote on Acts 15.13 in the Schofield reference Bible says this. These verses which follow in Amos describe the final regathering of Israel, which the other prophets invariably connect with the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. In other words, even when the inspired biblical authors describe a prophecy as being fulfilled in the church, proponents of classic dispensationalism insist on a further fulfillment. They insist that, for example, here, that what Peter is saying is only a partial fulfillment. The Gentiles becoming believers, becoming part of the people of God is only a partial fulfillment. And what this is really talking about is the final regathering of Israel. And so that's very typical of classic dispensationalism. If if the New Testament appears to say that the prophecy has been fulfilled in Christ or in the church, classic dispensationalists will say, well, that's only an application or partial fulfillment. The greater fulfillment is coming later, and it will be fulfilled through the physical nation of Israel. So what's our conclusion about how classic dispensationalists view biblical interpretation? They claim to follow a consistently literal interpretation, but our conclusion needs to be this. Their commitment is not to a literal interpretation, but to a firm distinction between Israel and the church. And remember, that was the key point I gave you at the beginning. 
that the, the very core of classic dispensationalism is a rigid distinction between Israel and the church. Classic dispensationalists are not so concerned about a consistent literal interpretation because they embrace typological interpretation, but their commitment is to a firm distinction between Israel and the church. Now let's shift our focus to the relationship between the covenants. And we'll start that that uh, section with an explanation of the difference between dispensations and covenants, because they're closely related but distinct. A dispensation is a historical outworking of God's plan. That's one way to think about it. In addition to the definitions we shared earlier. A covenant is an agreement governing relationship between God and man. Now, often new covenants and new dispensations went hand in hand. For example, we have the Noahic covenant and the dispensation of human government. We have the Abrahamic covenant and the dispensation of promise. Those two came together hand in hand. We have the Mosaic covenant and the dispensation of law. Again, those two went hand in hand. However, the Davidic covenant was also given within the dispensation of law. So we have the Davidic covenant, but there's no separate dispensation for that covenant. That that covenant falls within the dispensation of law. So there's a difference between a dispensation and a covenant. Now let's talk about types of covenants. Again, a covenant is an agreement between two parties. And we can talk about conditional covenants and unconditional covenants. Now, these are all definitions the classic dispensationalists are using. I'm not necessarily supporting or arguing against them. I'm just sharing what they view, how they view these things. A conditional covenant is binding on both parties. And if either party fails to fulfill their part, then the covenant is broken and neither party has to fulfill the expect the expectation. So conditional covenant, if either party fails to fulfill it, then it's basically broken and neither party has to continue to fulfill the expectations. Contrasting with that is an unconditional covenant, which requires only one party to do anything. Nothing is re- required of the other party. It's unconditional. It's, it's only on the basis of one party. Now, some Christians think that all of the covenants are conditional, while others, including dispensationalists, think that some of the covenants are unconditional, meaning God is the only actor. God is the only one who has to do anything and nothing is required of the other party. So continuing under this theme of types of covenants, let's look at unconditional covenants in the Bible. And again, this is according to classic dispensationalism because other Christians will argue that all of the covenants are conditional and there are no unconditional covenants in the Bible. But again, according to classic dispensationalism, Here are three of the unconditional covenants in the Bible. The first being the Abrahamic covenant, where God promises Abraham land, descendants, and blessing. And this requires nothing on Abraham's part. Uh, This is completely reliant upon God. Therefore, it is unconditional. God is going to fulfill it no matter what Abraham does. Next would be the Davidic covenant, which we can read about in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Here, God promises David and Israel that the Messiah would come from the lineage of David and the tribe of Judah and that God would establish a kingdom that would endure forever. Again, classic dispensationalists say this is an unconditional covenant that God is going to do this no matter what human beings do. 
Finally, the classic dispensationalists would call the new covenant an unconditional covenant. The new covenant being the one mentioned in Jeremiah 31, verses 31 to 34. Now, since these covenants are unconditional, they must be fulfilled by God. And again, nothing man does will prevent their fulfillment. All right, so now that we've talked about covenants a little bit, let's let's look at how the classic dispensationalists uh, literally interpret uh, the covenants. Oops. We'll start with the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel chapter 7, and focusing specifically on verses 12 to 13, it says this. When your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, this is God speaking to David, I will set up your seed after you who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So that's the Davidic covenant or the very heart of the Davidic covenant. Classic dispensationalists say it refers to an earthly throne and it cannot be spiritualized. In other words, this cannot, you cannot apply this to uh, Jesus Christ reigning from heaven. That would be a spiritual interpretation. This has to refer to a literal earthly throne with a literal earthly king sitting upon it. Lewis Chaffer says it this way. There is no evidence that David foresaw an earthly throne merging into a spiritual reign, nor is this kingdom and throne established in heaven. So to say that God fulfilled this covenant to David through Jesus Christ uh, reigning from heaven, classic dispensationalists would completely argue against that. They say, no, this is talking about a literal physical kingdom on earth with literal physical Israel, literal throne, and and a descendant of David sitting on earth on that literal throne. Again, it must be fulfilled with Israel in a physical way and not through uh, the church or not through Christ in heaven. So that is how the classic dispensationalists literally interpret the Davidic covenant. Now, this is where it really starts to get interesting. The literal interpretation of the new covenant from Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 to 34. Classic dispensationalists say that Israel is the only true recipient of the new covenant. Now, why do they say that? Well, you just have to read Jeremiah 31, verse 31, to see why they say that. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Now, I'm assuming classic dispensationalists basically bundle Judah together with Israel. But here they look at Jeremiah 31, 31. And again, prophecy about Israel has to be interpreted literally. And so they're saying, hey, this this new covenant is with the house of Israel. It has nothing to do with the church. And so, again, Classic dispensationalists see Israel as the only true recipient of the new covenant. Now, how each of those dispensationalists, Darby, Schofield, and Chafer, how they reconcile this with the New Testament teachings, uh, they have three different ways of reconciling it. None of them agree with one another. Darby says that the gospel is not formally a covenant, but a revelation of God's salvation in Christ. So he's saying the new covenant has nothing to do with the preaching of the gospel. That's something different. That's God's revelation of salvation in Christ. And the new covenant only has to do with Israel. Schofield says that the new covenant applies to Israel in the millennium. 
And there, but there's an application of it for the church in the present age. So he's basically saying the new covenant has a, an initial application in the present age in the church, but the ultimate fulfillment will be with Israel during the millennium. Chafer says that there are two new covenants. Uh, one applies to Israel and one applies to the church. So this, this whole idea of new covenant is really uh, a difficult point for classic dispensationalists. And you see that the three uh, historic proponents of Classic dispensationalism don't even agree about how to work this out. So uh, this literal interpretation of the new covenant applying only to Israel uh, causes some problems. We'll talk about that more in the afternoon session. Let's take a look at uh, some more quotes from the classic dispensationalists on the new covenant. Uh, Schofield says the new covenant is absolutely unconditional. And since no responsibility is by it committed to man, it is final and irreversible. So again, the new covenant is something God's going to do. It has nothing to do with what man does. Uh, God's going to do it. It's final and irreversible. Again, in this session, I'm not arguing for or against any of these things. I'm simply presenting what classic dispensationalists teach. Lewis Chaver says the new covenant rests on the faithfulness of God and not at all on the faithfulness of men and therefore is unbreakable by men. Okay, so again, you see that the classic dispensationalists viewed the new covenant as an unconditional covenant that relies entirely upon God and does not rely at all upon the faithfulness of man. All right, let's shift our focus now to how classic dispensationalists apply the law, specifically the law of Moses. Uh, First, they say that Old Testament law has no bearing on New Testament believers. Now, interestingly, this includes the Sermon on the Mount. It does not only include the laws of Moses, but includes Jesus's teachings, specifically the teachings on the Sermon on the Mount. Why is that? Well, if you remember, the dispensation of law stretches from the time period of Moses through to the crucifixion. And so where does the Sermon on the Mount fall? Is that before the crucifixion or after the crucifixion? Well, we all know it's before the crucifixion. Therefore, the Sermon on the Mount is considered uh, to be together with the Old Testament law. Therefore, I'm not making this up. Therefore, the Sermon on the Mount has no bearing on New Testament believers. The Sermon on the Mount is an ethic for Israel in the millennial kingdom. Not for New Testament believers. It's for Israel during the period of the millennial kingdom. It is addressed to Jews, not to Christians. Again, this is the Sermon on the Mount we're talking about. Addressed to Jews, not to Christians. And it does not belong to the dispensation of grace. Now, what dispensation are we living in now? We're living in the dispensation of grace, according to classic dispensationalists. And they say that the Sermon on the Mount does not belong to the dispensation of grace. It is part of the dispensation of law. Now, after saying these things, classic dispensationalists do concede a little bit on this point and say, well, maybe the Sermon on the Mount has some secondary application for Christians. You know, it's really given to the Jews. It really is an ethic for Israel in the millennial kingdom. But maybe there's some secondary application for Christians. So they don't throw it out completely. 
Um, but it's definitely the, they're saying that the, this is for the Jews. It's for Israel. It's for the time of the millennial kingdom. And hey, Christians, you know, if you can apply some of it, fine. Now, I want you to hear this from the words of their own mouth. Lewis Chaper says the teachings of Moses and the teachings of the kingdom, in other words, Jesus's teachings, in other words, the Sermon on the Mount, are purely legal. While the instructions to the believer of this dispensation are in conformity with pure grace. In other words, Jesus's teachings are purely legal. They belong to the uh, dispensation of law. But believers, Christians, are in the dispensation of grace. And so the instructions for the believers are those instructions that fall within the dispensation of grace. Not Jesus's teachings on the Sermon on the Mount, not the teachings about the kingdom, uh, not the teachings of Moses. Schofield Reference Bible has a footnote for John chapter one, verse 17 in the 1909 edition that says, I'm sorry, before I go into that. Uh, I'm going to quickly shift topics here. I know we're running short on time. Uh, the next question we want to address is how are Old Testament saints saved? How are Old Testament saints saved? The Schofield Reference Bible, again, for uh, John chapter 1, verse 17 in the 1909 edition, says this. As a dispensation, grace begins with the death and resurrection of Christ, as we already said. The point of testing is no longer legal obedience as the condition of salvation, but acceptance or rejection of Christ with good works as a fruit of salvation. Now, this is what was printed in the 1909 edition, but it was entirely changed in the 1967 edition. Why is that? Because it seems to say it seems to uh, say that there are two ways of salvation, that in the dispensation of law. The way of salvation is uh, legal legal obedience to the law of Moses, but in the dispensation of grace, the basis for salvation is uh, accepting Christ. And so classic dispensationalists realize, hey, we're teaching two ways of salvation here. And so they changed this footnote in the 1967 edition. But you can see uh, what was initially taught. Uh, Lewis Chaffer says it like this. A distinction must be observed here between just men of the Old Testament, righteous men of the Old Testament, and those justified according to the New Testament. According to the Old Testament, men were just or righteous because of their own works for God, whereas New Testament justification is God's work for man in answer to faith. And so Lewis Chaver doesn't say it quite as explicitly. But again, we sort of see that there are two ways of salvation being taught, or at least two ways of being uh, justified in the eyes of God. Now, Chaver also said this, and we have to give uh, we have to consider this. He said, we believe that the dispensations are not ways of salvation. We believe that according to the eternal purpose of God, salvation in the divine reckoning is always by grace through faith and rests upon the basis of the shed blood of Christ. And so we have to consider what Chaffer here said as well, that, hey, he said, we're not trying to teach two ways of salvation, although it sure seems like they were. Um, but we have to take him at his word and say, you know, that's not what they were trying to do. And uh, he's not trying to say there's two ways of salvation. He believes everybody is saved by grace through faith. And so there's some question marks there. Is that really what is taught? Is that what was taught early on? And then it was changed. How 
are the Old Testament saved? Are there really two ways of salvation or not? There's some question marks there. Okay, finally, let's move on to the relationship between Israel and the church. Again, as we've said earlier in this presentation, classic dispensationalists teach a rigid distinction between the two, a rigid distinction between Israel and the church. And again, if you can remember that, you've grasped the core of classic dispensationalism, rigid distinction between Israel and the church. Israel is earthly. The church is heavenly. Schaefer says it like this. The dispensationalist believes that throughout the ages, God is pursuing two distinct purposes, one related to the earth with earthly people, in other words, Israel, while the other is related to heaven with heavenly people, in other words, the church and heavenly objectives involved. So there's Israel, which is earthly, and there's the church, which is heavenly. Uh, Schaefer also says this. Israelites become such by a natural birth, while Christians become such by a spiritual birth. So again, Israelites are earthly. They become Israelites through earthly means, which is a natural birth, being natural descendants of Jacob or Israel. Christians become such by a spiritual birth. It's a heavenly uh, thing that happens. It's a spiritual thing. So again, rigid distinction between Israel and the church. Israel is earthly. The church is, hev- is heavenly. The church will be raptured, but Israel will remain. And we'll talk about that more in a minute, this idea of the church being raptured, but Israel will remain. Schofield says, the church will be taken away from the earth entirely, but restored Israel is yet to have her greatest earthly splendor, splendor and power. So God's going to take the church out of the way, and he's going to focus again on Israel. So the church will be raptured, but Israel will remain. All right, we'll get back to that idea of the church being raptured. Now, let's talk about the kingdom of God. Now, interestingly, classic dispensationalists make a distinction between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven. They say that the kingdom of God is universal, while the kingdom of heaven is the messianic and Davidic kingdom on earth. Now, I'll talk about this more (laughs) next session, but I find it quite ironic that the kingdom of heaven is talking about the kingdom on earth. I don't understand that. It doesn't make sense to me. But anyway, that is the teaching. Uh, The kingdom of God is entered by new birth, this new spiritual birth being born again. But the kingdom of heaven is a sphere of a profession that may be true or false. In other words, those who are in the kingdom of God are true believers who have experienced uh, uh, being born again at the new birth, while the kingdom of heaven is composed of those who, whose confession or profession of faith may be true or may be false. Uh, the kingdom of God is inward and spiritual. <laughs> and again, I don't understand this, but this is the teaching. The kingdom of heaven is organic and earthly. I, I would probably reverse those if I were to make a distinction, but hey. This isn't what I think. This is what classic dispensationalists think. Kingdom of God is inward and spiritual. Kingdom of heaven is organic and earthly. And the ultimate teaching is that the kingdom of heaven will merge into the kingdom of God when Christ defeats all his enemies and delivers over the kingdom of God. So right now, the kingdom of heaven and kingdom of God are separate with separate functions. But one day, the kingdom of heaven will merge into the kingdom of God. And there will basically be one. 
So let's look at more teachings about the kingdom from the classic dispensationalist point of view. Classic dispensationalists say that Jesus offered the earthly messianic kingdom to Israel, but Israel rejected it. Because Israel rejected the kingdom, Jesus then changed his message and proclaimed the mysteries of the kingdom from Matthew chapter 13, verse 11, which has to do with the gospel in the present church age. Also, because Israel rejected the kingdom, the literal restoration of the national kingdom of Israel has been postponed. If you've ever heard the term postponement theology, it comes from this idea. Israel rejected the kingdom. And so the literal restoration of the national kingdom of Israel has been postponed to a later time. This is the teaching of classic dispensationalism. As I mentioned, classic dispensationalists teach that we are in the dispensation of grace right now. And next, the final dispensation is the dispensation of kingdom. And so what are the signs marking the transition from grace to kingdom? How will we know we're moving from the dispensation of grace to the dispensation of kingdom? Well, first is the removal of the church. Also in classic dispensational teaching called the pre-tribulation rapture. If you've ever heard the term pre-trib, this is what it's talking about. The pre-tribulation rapture, removing the church before the period of the tribulation. Now, this whole idea of rapture comes from First Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 16 to 17, where it says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. So the word rapture doesn't actually appear in scripture, but it's primarily taken from these two verses, especially this idea of um, then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. That is what the word rapture is referring to. Now, what's interesting is as you look at that text in First Thessalonians chapter four, it doesn't say what happens after we meet the Lord in the air. Do we go to heaven at that point? Do we come back down to the earth and reign with Christ for a thousand years? It doesn't say. And so that requires some interpretation. Now, the classic dispensationalists interpret that as the uh, believers who are alive and remain. They're caught up in the Lord in the in the clouds and meet the Lord in the air. And then they're removed from the earth. They do not return to the earth. They're raptured and the church is out of the way so that God can go back to focusing on Israel because the church is really sort of uh, just sort of a side thought. It's not it's not really at the focus of what God is doing. And so God needs to take the church out of the way to get back to his primary focus, which is Israel. Okay, so we have the removal of the church. Then we have the tribulation. Then the return of Christ. The judgment of Israel, the establishment of the Davidic kingdom, the judgment of the nations. And finally, the binding of Satan. So these seven signs mark the transition from grace to kingdom uh, within classic dispensational teaching. So what about the church? The church age is a parenthesis in God's ultimate plan. And God's ultimate plan centers on the nation of Israel. So think about parenthesis. It's kind of it's not the main point. It's something that's sort of added in. You could take it or leave it. 
And so the church age is kind of like this thing that's interrupting God's plan. And so in order for God to fulfill his plan, he's got to get the church out of the way. <clears throat> so in the teaching of classic dispensationalism, you got to get the church out of the way because it's just a parenthesis so that God can get back to his ultimate plan. During the church age, God is redeeming people from every nation. But again, the day will come when the church is removed and God will return his focus to Israel. Get that pesky church out of the way because it's messing up my plan. And the church will be removed before the tribulation. And that's that's where we get this idea of pre-trib. Before the tribulation comes, the church will be removed. <clears throat> now, I want to finish here with a comparison of historic premillennialism versus dispensational premillennialism. And the idea of premillennialism is that Christ is going to return before the thousand years that are mentioned in Revelation 20. That's what millennium means, is a thousand years. So this is what was taught in the historic church, in the early church, and it's also what's taught in dispensationalism. But what the historic church meant by premillennialism, or Christ returning before the thousand years, is different than what dispensationalists teach, or what they mean by the term premillennialism. So we have to understand these differences. So in historic premillennialism, or what was taught in the early church, the church is included in Old Testament prophecy. So when when you're reading Old Testament prophecies, they have the church in mind as part of the fulfillment. However, in dispensational premillennialism, Old Testament prophecy is only about national Israel. It is not about the church. So there's one important difference. And similar to that difference is this next point. In historic premillennialism, the church age was foreseen in the Old Testament. But in dispensational premillennialism, the church age was not foreseen in the Old Testament and is therefore a great parenthesis in history. That's a common term you'll hear in dispensationalism, parenthesis, talking about the church as a parenthesis. Next point, in historic premillennialism, the rapture will happen after the tribulation. And again, we have to be careful with this term rapture. What it's talking about is when those who remain are uh, meet the Lord in the air. And in the teaching of historic premillennialism, uh, the Christians who remain after the tribulation meet the Lord in the air, and then they return with the Lord to earth to reign for a thousand years. And this is probably one of the biggest differences between historic premillennialism and dispensational premillennialism, because dispensationalists teach that the rapture will happen before the tribulation. So the Christians who are alive at the time will meet the Lord in the air before the tribulation, and then they'll be taken away, and then Christ will come to earth without the Christians, without the church. In historic premillennialism, as I mentioned, after the rapture or after the after those who are alive when Christ returns, meet him in the air, they come with him to earth to reign for a thousand years. However, as I mentioned, in dispensational premillennialism, after the quote-unquote rapture, the church will be removed and the promised Davidic kingdom will be restored to Israel and they will reign on earth for a thousand years. So in historic premillennialism, during this thousand-year reign, the Christians are there with Christ reign. However, in dispensational premillennialism, the church is taken out of the picture and the Davidic kingdom is physically restored on earth and it is only national Israel who is reigning during those thousand years. All right. I know that was a whole lot of information. 
probably like drinking from a fire hose. And so hopefully uh, you are able to process a lot of that. Um, again, the core difference uh, or the core, dis- what the core teaching of classic dispensationalism is a rigid distinction between Israel and the church. So if you can remember that, everything else starts to fall in line. I know Bryant said that most of our discussion is going to come in the next session. Um, Wendell, I don't know if we have any time for any uh, questions or discussion. If, if we do, I would ask that we keep the questions and discussion only to understanding what classic dispensationalists teach and not getting into any sort of critique of what they teach. Yeah, sure. That's a good point, Adam. Um, and yeah, thanks a lot for sharing that. And I do appreciate your, I want to say, I appreciate your, your charity here. Um, this whole subject is something that I, I think probably many of us have seen lots of really uh, fiery rhetoric and, you know, really sort of some nasty nastiness on both sides, probably of the subject of people kind of calling each other names and that sort of thing. So thanks for being charitable in that, Adam. Um, and yeah, so we did have one question come in here that I think applies on the chat that applies to the, um, to what you, what you talked about. And someone asked is no, uh, Tim asked is Noah's covenant also considered unconditional by the um, classic dispensationalists. In in my research, I did not see that that was considered a, to be an unconditional covenant. Um, but if anybody knows more about that, I, I don't know a whole lot about that. Uh, if anyone knows more about that, they can chime in. But I did not see that it was considered an unconditional covenant. It was the main three, the Abrahamic, Davidic, and New Covenant, and also a lesser known covenant called the Palestinian covenant. Those were the four that were the unconditional covenants. And I believe the rest were considered to be conditional. Okay. Thanks. Um, so Glenn, is it possible for someone to ask a question right now? Yeah. So like what was already mentioned, uh, most of the questions are going to be this afternoon. Uh, we have received a few questions already and uh, we appreciate that. Um, anybody that has uh, questions that you would like to submit for consideration this afternoon, if you would be um, able to go to our website, you can go to the contact page and send your question that way, or you can simply email us at contact at strengthtostrength.org. That's contact at strengthtostrength.org, and we will take as many questions as we have time for this afternoon. Okay. Well, thank you. Um, I don't think I have any more comments. Thanks for, for your presentation there, Adam, and looking forward to this afternoon or as in the case, the case will be for you tomorrow morning. Yes. Um, yes. If I seem a little groggy, please forgive me. <laughs> well, our day is starting and your day is ending. So I hope you have a good night of sleep and, and are, and are fresh for it tomorrow. Um, okay. Yes. All right. I look forward to speaking with you all again then. Sounds good. Why don't we have have a closing prayer here? Do you want to lead us in a, in a short prayer, Adam? Sure. And then I'll turn it over to Glenn for some announcements. Uh, Lord God, we know that the heart of what it means to follow you is, is simple obedience to the teachings of Christ and his apostles. Mm-hmm. And God... I think if we had our preference, we wouldn't get into all these things. 
but Lord, there's theologies that have come up that are dangerous and, and sometimes they ensnare us without us realizing it. And so we're forced to talk about these things, even though we'd rather just focus on, on our simple obedience to you. And so God help us to be able to understand these things and to be aware of teachings that could draw us away from you and from simple obedience to you. I pray, Lord, that as those listening in go throughout their day, that they will they will process and think about all of this information they've received and what classic dispensationalists teach. And Lord, that you would help us to be aware of teachings that are going to draw us away from you. And help us not to be uh, overly critical, uh, to be careful in the language we use as we talk about others. Uh, There's people that have wrong theology, but who are wholeheartedly obedient to you. And we want to be able to consider them brothers. And so, Lord, help us to be careful about how we talk about others. Uh, But, Lord, help us also to process teachings that can be dangerous and to know how to to deal with them and, and to know why why we should avoid them. And so Lord, give us wisdom and open up our, our spirit to receive what you are wanting to teach us uh, through this time. I pray that you bless each man as he goes about his day today and bring us all back for the session uh, this afternoon. We pray in Jesus name. Amen. Amen. All right. So um, as was already mentioned, you're welcome back this afternoon. Uh, that is three o'clock p.m. Eastern time. And uh, that's going to be part two. So part one here was just mostly um, informative regarding uh, what classic dispensationalism is. Part two is going to be a critique and um, and how this is going to uh, more closely affect us, uh, more of a practical uh, message. So, yeah, looking forward to that. Uh, like what was already mentioned, we look forward to your questions and um, look forward to seeing you then. Thank you, Brother Adam, and uh, we'll see you in a few hours. All right. See you then. Yep, lessons gone. As iron sharpens iron, so a man sharpens the countenance of his friend.